think one of the best pictures I've ever seen. It has a picture of a mountain on it with a guy planting a flag in the ground and the flag says go live and it's like yes we're live and then right next to it is an even bigger mountain that says change management. And welcome everybody to Equality Podcast Season 2. We're happy to have with us today Kyle Kump. Kyle is a financial services process wizard, and he's here to talk to us about lean process improvement in the financial sector. So we're pretty excited, Kyle. We don't have a lot of banking people on here. Hope I can call you a banking person. How are you doing today? Doing great. Sure. I'm a, I'm an accidental banker or a, an artificial banker, however you want to call it. I, I, I have to take PTO to go play golf. So I guess you know, <laughs> normal bankers don't don't get, have to do that. I think you're playing the game wrong, Kyle. <laughs> yeah. Well, we were excited to have you on the show because we highlight lean and continuous improvement. And there's a lot of people in that space, you know, in manufacturing and that sort of thing. And there's a lot of excitement and interest outside of kind of your typical production environment. And so we try to highlight folks that have experience in other sectors. So financial services, I know I wish that pretty much all of the uh, banks and lending institutions I work with were lean. So to get in touch with you was pretty cool. I didn't even know it was a thing. So if you don't mind, tell us a little bit about yourself, what you're doing, what's cool, and what in the hell lean finance even is. Yeah, we'll get to lean finance because I don't know if it exists yet, but uh, that's the passion of mine to try and get that to exist. Um, but I, I have a, an interesting career path. I went to school for engineering worked as a traditional engineer in a warehouse for a while, went out into consulting and um, consulted in, in lean and continuous improvements. And then one day woke up and I was, I was working for a bank. Um, don't know what happened there. And, and talking with people that work for financial institutions, they say that a lot. They say, yeah, no one wakes up or goes to school or, you know, thinks a little, I'm going to be a banker. I'm going to work for a bank. They just accidentally fall into it and then they never leave. And, here I am six years later, still working for the, the same financial institution. Um, learned a lot. It's a very interesting and intriguing industry. Uh, but like you said earlier, uh, a lot of this stuff that's worked in manufacturing and other physical environments, uh, it absolutely applies to the office. Um, you know, the, the hidden factory that are within our offices. And there are many of those hidden factories uh, in, in banks and in their back offices. And so I spend my days in those areas, um, when I first got into financial services, I was brought on as a process improvement manager. And first big project was on our, our credit, our commercial lending value stream. I think I was the first one to refer to it as a value stream. Um, so I tossed people some new terms and, and walked them through what that meant and you know what a process is and, and showed them that, you know, we're not building cars here, but we are assembling a loan. There are steps to that, parts to that, policies and procedures that guide that. Um, and then I've moved on through the organization since then. Another similar projects um, that I've also managed uh, a functional area on our operations side. And then now I'm in our uh, portfolio management office, um, responsible for process and continuous improvement of uh, how we initiate and then execute projects to you know, solve you, our pro problems. Can you please just the queue line when you walk into a bank, like fix that. That's always the biggest nightmare when I walk into a bank. Wait, wait, wait! You you still walk into a bank? 
So, oh well, fair, fair enough. But well, you know what? I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna drop the company name, but I'll totally get John to drop the company name. And you, they force you for several critical forms where they'll write, they'll write my ex-wife's name and mine. And now you're saying I have to go to a bank and I have to bring my ex-wife with me to sign this document. Like, fuck you, bank. Like, what are you doing to me? Yeah, so now that we've sufficiently established how old uh, Jake is, um, <laughs> so in the uh, financial services world, um, maybe you could give a brief outline to our audience um, about the different sectors that are sort of, you know, legislation, right? Regulation determines what different institutions can do. And maybe just give a, a brief lay of the land for everybody on what the world of finance looks like right now. Yes, it's definitely very, very regulated. One of the most regulated industries in the world. Um, depending on your institution size, generally by assets, um, determines who your regulating body is. Um, a lot of you know regional size banks. Um, probably are related by the FDIC and uh, Federal Reserve Bank. The bigger ones, once you start getting over 30 billion assets and definitely over 50 billion in assets, and you've got the OCC um, breathing down your neck and they've, they've got their own list of um, what I'll call rules and standards. That are there. And they're typically a little more prescriptive at that point. Um, and they're just, you know, harder to abide by. Um, <clears throat> but all these regulations, you know, it, it sounds like we're constrained in what we can do, but in reality, if you think about it, banks and other financial institutions, we are essentially doing business with uh, our, our inventory is money. It's deposits that don't belong to us. So we're, we're, we're con or holding the money of other people who are depositing their, you know, their, their money into our institution. And so there, there's a reason to have regulations um, so that we don't lose that money. Um, so we make sure we're doing what we're supposed to with it. Um, but they can definitely make it challenging to try and, and make improvements to any process, large and small. Uh, but that's just part of the, the, the complex, complicated environment that we have to navigate. And yeah, since it's a fractional reserve system, that means you can create new inventory out of thin air, right? <laughs> yeah, magically, we've got new inventory. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, how do you in the finance industry like get the actual voice of the customer? What method is there that exists for Ooh. both internally and externally to get that data set? That is a good question. You know, what a lot of what we do where I work today and what I, I know of a lot it's really popular in a lot of institutions is surveys. Um, you know, they're they're we, we all get peppered with surveys. Uh, after every transaction we do, you might get an email or a text, whether it's going to the bank, grocery store, the doctor, they're sending a text, say, how was your experience today? What would you like us to do better or something like that? Um, there's a place for that, but I always find surveys to be very moody. Um, even if I, you know, if I'm in a bad mood, nothing to do with you, Jake, but if you send me a survey on, on how this podcast was today, tomorrow and I'm in a bad mood, I might give it a poor ratings because tomorrow I'm, I'm pissed off. Mm -hmm. Um, uh, yeah, so you gotta be kind of a, careful with that. Isn't there another issue there though with the with the surveys? Because um, I have gotten quite a few surveys. I mean, to the point I just did throw them out now, right? From my banking institutions, right? I'm not gonna mention any names, but you know, it kind of rhymes with case. Um, 
but they send <laughs> they they send this Face survey out. <laughs> they send this survey out and the problem is that the questions have diddly squat to do with my experience at the bank completely unrelated like how was the you know service person's attitude today on a scale of one to five well i don't even know i don't i don't even care i had a problem and nobody could fix it right mm -hmm. or i had to wait you know on the line for 60 minutes you know so you have like these scale of one to ten like they pre-decided what they want information about instead of asking me how can we create value for you right is that fair yeah i would say that's pervasive across me on multiple surveys multiple industries um i like that you brought up the uh i think something about calls or wait times so i know one of the common metrics in many industries is average call time you know they want to keep that down to a pretty minimal measure okay great you're you're answering and resolving every call or ending every call in under two minutes great uh did you solve the problem that the customer called in for like measure that yeah. it's a simple yes yeah. or no did we or yeah. did we not measure that but no one does it so you can't benchmark against it that's one of the you know the objections yeah. you get but um, I, mean, I think that would be a very valuable measure yeah definitely like I would, as a banking customer or any customer, right? I would rather um, have confidence that who I'm talking to can solve my problem and get a call back or schedule a callback time. So mm -hmm. for my checking account, I do business with like a regional, you know, a local bank and I can call the local branch and talk to a human and I know their names and faces, you know, and all of that. And, you know, I'll, I'll call them up and say, hey, you know, I'm trying to import this thing from China and you know, my card is going to block it because, you know, the fraud protections we have nowadays. Be like, oh, okay, Mr. Thacker. Well, you know, Susie is on the line with another customer. She's the one that changes the setting and in the computer for you. But can I have her call you back, you know, at in 20 minutes or something like that? Sure. Yeah. Or no, I'm busy. I'm working. But how about 1130? Yeah, no problem. Right. I'll, I'm happy to do that. I can work with another person, you know, to schedule. Um, what I don't want to do is sit there for 45 minutes or even two minutes and not get helped. Right. Right. So that's, that's kind of a uh, critical part of lean, right? Is if you can't define how you create value for the customer, then you kind of can't do lean and you might be, you know, rapidly improving or continuously improving the wrong thing or the wrong direction. Right. And do you know who your customer is? Can you define your customer? I found that to be a challenge for some organizations. Yeah, yeah, that's a good point. Um, a uh, example that I use with folks is, you know, do you buy Oreo cookies? Okay. Yes. So, yes. One hundred percent of the time. <laughs> so, Jake, you've already heard this. You can't answer. But who makes Oreo cookies? Nestle, right? Nah. <laughs> <laughs> It's Mondelez. Yeah, it's Mondelez. Which Mondelez you know, you know, for all you people out there that can say it right. It's pronounced Mondelez. Mondelez. Um, it's, it's French. I'm a Jean Thacker. I know how to pronounce Mondelez. <laughs> <laughs> By the way, did you see my new uh, audio next to my name in uh, LinkedIn? I did not. It's I'm going to check that out now. <laughs> I, I've got to. He put, he put himself as the as the Justin Bieber of Six Sigma. And I was, oh, this is great. Just based on a conversation a few days ago. And, uh, what does that even that. mean? 
it, exactly. We don't like, know. Like, 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 so, so yeah. you're saying, so you're saying you're a Six Sigma train wreck. Is, is that it? A <laughs> uh, hundred million dollar, a hundred million dollar train wreck with daddy problems. Yeah. <laughs> it literally means nothing, right? Yeah. Like most headlines yeah. I looked at. Um, so, but the, here's the point. The point is that if you have a problem with your Oreos, you don't go to Mondelez. You don't even know who they are. Most people don't. Right, you go to Walmart or wherever you bought them, right? Ease, Mondelez. Um, so, Mondelez's customer is Walmart, not me. I'm the consumer, mm-hmm. and Walmart really has all of the power in the relationship because they can tell these manufacturers. You know, it's a hundred thousand dollar slotting fee just to get on the shelf, and if you want prime real estate or an end cap. Let's talk, right? Mm-hmm. Um, we're only going to carry three flavors. Well, now all of a sudden your marketing department, you know, your product development department is like, okay, we really have to come up with the three best ideas because if it's not on the Walmart shelf, you know, it, we're not really going to sell it, right? Um, so there are, I think, a lot of industries like that where the consumer and the customer aren't the same. Um, and I think finance can be like that. Sometimes, depending absolutely. on the product. Absolutely, yeah. absolutely, absolutely, and it's it's interesting. So I work for a bank holding company, and then we have eleven independently chartered banks in different states under us that have their own brands, and that's you know the customers know that local bank, but then the back office where all the processing happens is in the the holding company, and. Right. They, they until recently the bank logos like the, the customers had no idea Heartland existed uh, are now HTLF. Well, now the bank logos say powered by HTLF. Um, that's the first time we've ever really told the world like, hey, there's this other entity behind these right. these organizations that you work with face to face. So that's a good point because we have end customer who's opening up a deposit accounts or and such or applying for loans at this bank who's then punching in numbers into a computer to submit the application that then comes to the holding company level and is underwritten and you know decisioned and then and then funded. So what are some of your like targets? What are you actually trying to improve? Is that a lead time? Is that a quality of service? What is like what is your go-to? Mike my, my. I've been tasked with improving many different measures, you know, service level agreements are a popular one in the industry, you know, turnaround times. Um, how often do we hit our targets? Um, the typical type of measures that you'll, you'll see measured everywhere. Um, one of my pet peeves is trying to measure everything. Um, and then you spend all your time measuring, 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 and actually you don't spend any time improving. You're just trying to figure out how do we measure this. And some of the metrics I've seen people try to come up with, uh, the, the titles of them sound like you need a PhD to even understand what the, uh, the title is. Like some, you know, the penetration mix of XYZ markets in Southwest America or United States. It's like, okay. Longitude 41.3. Yeah, what, yeah, yeah. what is... What is that? How is that going to help us? Yeah. Um, I'll, I'll tell you, in my life, I haven't measured... At this point, Rat launched into a rather lengthy diatribe about the benefits of soda water on seasickness, 
a turn in the conversation that Toad found to be altogether tiresome. Jake, <laughs> now I have to edit that out. <laughs> you know, when we talk about metrics and, you know, you mentioned like measuring too much, of course, that's a big problem. You know, I've helped a lot of companies figure out like, what should we be measuring? Um, how much should we measure? How many things? So, you know, frequently for me, what I start with is what's the value proposition to the customer? Like, how do we define value to the customer, right? And usually the people doing the work, you know, know intuitively, like, what we're bad at. And so we just pick one of those to start with. But my general rule of thumb is I don't mind collecting data, especially if it's semi-automated or automated, because I, I'll be able to refer to it later. But... I'm only actively tracking and charting and making an effort to collect data on what I'm improving right now. Does that make sense? Mm -hmm. Because, you know, you're so right. Like you can only move as fast as you can move, you know, with the improvement. So spending a lot of bandwidth measuring stuff that I'm not even going to look at for a year, you know, six months, 18 months um, is just a waste of talent I can be using to improve something right now, right? I have definitely had cases where you're a CI manager or you're an industrial engineer and 80, 90% of your job is sending out reports to data we don't do anything with. Yeah. Yeah, so there Kyle, is a, a client. You see that? Oh, go ahead. Oh, absolutely. Um, there was a, when I was consulting, I was working, working with a medical clinic and there was some monthly report that they would send out that one one or two people would, would complete or compile this report. It took them about a week to actually put this report together. That was as of the end of the previous month. And then they'd send it out to a bunch of executives and directors. And finally, one day they asked the question in a meeting, like, who reads this? At that point, it was still printed. Like, does anyone read this? What is that? Oh, I had no idea. We, uh, <laughs> we, uh, um, even had this report. And so they looked through it and they're like, yeah, there's like one thing here that might be useful and we can get that over here. So they just stopped making that whole report and say those two people that week of time. Um, yeah. That kind of stuff's yeah. pervasive. Um, but back to measuring, when I when I took over part of operations, uh, one of the, that team, a lot of their work came in via these tickets, some kind of request to do some maintenance on an account. And they have a measure prior on, okay, each person needs to get X tickets done per day, whatever that was, 25 or 50 tickets a day. And if, if everyone's sitting that target, then we're, we're getting enough tickets done. Um, but what I found was that our customer, our, our bank employees were not happy with the service they were getting, whether that ticket, their tickets they were spending were uh, not done quickly enough uh, or they weren't done right. Um, so we, we were tracking turnaround times and seeing how long it was taken to get tickets done. And there were a few outliers. Most of them were getting done really quickly. The, the, there was a few outliers that weren't. And, um, but measuring just get tickets done was driving the wrong behaviors because people tickets were coming into a queue and they were just cherry picking. Well, I'm, I'm going to pick the easy ones, get the easy ones done. Uh, so I can get my, my goal for the day then and not worry about it. Well, then that was leave someone else with all the hard complex tickets and then they couldn't hit that target. Um, and so when I came in, I said, I don't care how many tickets you get done every day. I don't care if it's 10 or 50. I care that you get those 10 done right or those 50 done right. Um, and then work them and trying to work them in some way that we're getting them done quickly. And that we established a goal asking our customer, like, what is the expectation? 
well, we want everything done in an hour. Well, okay, well, we can't do everything in an hour. Um, so we started off with a target. How about, because we were averaging about four and a half days. It's like, how, how about we just cut that in half? That's the first one. Go to two days. And then from there, if we hit that, then let's see if we can get down to, you know, one day. Um, and that's what we're able to work on. But then that drove different behaviors because then people weren't just cherry picking tickets. Uh, they were picking up as they came in. And, and then we realized, oh, well, we're getting a, a high mix of tickets. So I use the example, I think I posted about this on LinkedIn. You know, if you're equating the, the amount of work to a piece of fruit, you know, you can eat a bunch of grapes real easily. Um, but if you eat a watermelon in between, it kind of throws you off. And so we found a way to filter and sort these tickets into um, essentially kind of families. That way you could go to these different queues and then clear them out very quickly, uh, put some standards around it, create a standard work. Um, if we hit, you know, certain levels within them, we had decision trees that the team could pick up, look at, wouldn't have to come get me. They could look at the decision tree and um, know what to do. And, they could restaff, reorganize staff to, to make sure this work's getting done without, hey, Kyle, we have a problem over here. We don't know what to do. Um, and it was obviously it happened overnight, but over the course of a few months, that's what we were able to do. And it was awesome. But that was all just, it wasn't me coming in the department saying, hey, we got to measure everything. Um, and you guys need to do this, this, and that. It was, what's the actual problem we're trying to solve here? What's our customer telling us? And let's work with them to set some initial targets and work to achieve those and, and learn as we go and, and use whatever we need, whatever countermeasure we need to to do that. Yeah, that is a dearth I see uh, pretty much across industries where we don't spend enough time examining what behaviors the system actually incentivizes. And we, with some interesting examples, I was just chatting with an engineer friend of mine last night, actually. And he said, you know what, in my last job, mm -hmm. I had always worked so hard and was coming after it as absolutely hard as I could for 12 hours a day, every day. And in my new role, I'm doing the same thing, different company. And I just find that I'm not, I'm not real engaged. I'm not real going after it. I'm like, what is wrong with me? And then, so I started asking questions about the difference between the two companies and it became very immediately apparent that the system, like how that company behaves and what they're trying to accomplish and how they go about it is what was driving your behavior to act in that way, not the other way around. Mm -hmm. Yeah, Dimming talks a lot about that. Yeah, definitely. Um, systems thinking, right? Uh, some of the interest in Deming and the exaggeration online, you know, is just coming from folks that have never had the opportunity to study complex systems, right? So mm -hmm. if you talk to your average engineer, at least at the graduate level, for sure, you know, they just finished modeling a hurricane using six differential equations in the imaginary number line. Like, what Deming's talking about is very common among, you know, some fields of study with the added element of psychology. You know, there's a lot of folks that uh, they're like, wow, I've never, never thought this way before. You know, this is so interesting and intriguing. It's a really good example of how the average business leader is average, right? There's a lot of specialized fields of study uh, that have a lot you can bring to bear you know, on the current state. Um, and we shouldn't expect leaders to know everything. You know, we talk on the podcast sometimes, Jake and I all the time about the Ubermension philosophy and like, you know, what color cape is your new boss wearing? You know, it's, it's really not a effective or realistic 
approach. Uh, whereas, you know, really leaders should be using everything at their disposal and getting the team to work together and share their collective knowledge. Because I'll bet if you talk to the industrial engineer on your team, they're probably pretty familiar with Deming and, and everything else, right? You don't have to be an expert. You just have to be a leader. Yeah, Kyle actually, Kyle had a, uh, a recent post I, I loved where he said, you should celebrate not needing a hero. And I thought that was very moving. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, he- hero culture is another, another pet peeve of mine. I got a lot of pet peeves. I should come up with a name for him besides pet peeve. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's just that, that hero culture, it, it, you know, there's a line in the movie, uh, Mission Impossible 2, every hero needs a villain. And so if you are a hero, and if you say our company has a hero culture, well, on its on the service, that might sound, oh, that sounds fun. Um, well, no, not really, because in order for that person to be a hero, there has to be some kind of crisis, some kind of fire going on constantly for those there to be heroes, for them to swoop in, save the day, and then, you know, go back off into yep. the, the sunset. Um, and if that's the type of environment that your company's operating in, that's just got to be grueling to everyone else. Yeah, it's great for the hero because they get celebrated, get promoted, get a bonus, whatever. Um, but then that when that problem pop, props up again, well, then it's the line workers that are getting impacted by that. And they're like, well, we had the same problem last week. Now we got to call in Johnny again and have him swoop in and come in here and fix the problem for us. Again, that's for you. Yeah, like you said, John's getting the team together to solve that problem. The one's doing the work. That hero could swoop in as a leader and, help facilitate that so that you have that knowledge share and have the people doing the work, you know, put the countermeasure in, come with the countermeasure and then test it. Um, so that way you're, you're developing them to then solve their own problems versus them being dependent on you to come in all the time and help them out. I love that. So let me ask Kyle, what do you find are the most powerful levers like within the problems you experience in the finance industry? Is it connecting with people? Is it changing rules? What is what is the, the primary lever there to improvement? The primary lever to improve. Sorry, you kind of broke up there a little bit. I'll make sure I, I heard the question correctly. Did you repeat that? Yeah. So what is the I, I love what you were saying about hero culture. My question is in the finance industry doing what you're doing. What are the primary levers to move forward? Is that people connection? Is that changing rules, strategy, systems? What is what does that look like? Uh, Just write everybody up. Say, you know what? <laughs> yeah, New it. sheriff you know and what? <laughs> <laughs> You get a pink slip. You get written up. <laughs> <laughs> Oprah Winfrey of write-ups. Yeah. Everyone's getting a write-up. The write-up. Yeah. No, there's a, there's a, actually there's a, I was on my favorite mistake with Mark Raven sharing my write-up story where I gave a write-up I didn't think I should have given, but that's a whole nother conversation. No, I think uh, you said people connection. I would say relationships, um, which I say is really important everywhere. Um, but when you, when I first came into the organization, like I, I didn't have any direct team that reported to me. So I had to, to influence without authority. And I can't do that if, I don't, if no one knows me, if no one knows what I'm really trying to do. Um, so I spend a lot of time just kind of walking my offices and saying hi and going to get coffee or having lunch with people um, just to build that relationship. Because uh, that's what opens the door then to deeper discussions around actual methods for how do we get better or what do we even need to change. If I, if I walk in the door for day one and said, hey, let's go fix a loan turnaround, decision turnaround, turnaround time. Some people might have been like, oh, yeah, great, let's do that. But the people that I probably really need to work with to do that, 
I've been like, oh, great. Here's some new project we got to do. We're already busy enough. <laughs> Kyle thinks he knows everything. Uh, we wouldn't have gotten anywhere very quickly. Um, so that's definitely it is just building those relationships. But then you also mentioned rules. And one of the things I have found, especially in banking, where you have all these regulations that are, you know, each regulation's that thick, lots to dig through. Uh, it's interpreting those rules and what we really, what they're really saying. Um, you know, if, if you're read, trying to read into them too much, you might say that, oh, it's saying we can't do this. Well, in reality, yeah, we can do that. Um, I, I think in reality, they're, they're there to set some guidelines. Um, and yes, they are open to some interpretation, but I always like to say, be careful not to over-interpret the regulations. Otherwise, you're going to end up constraining yourself and, and never moving forward with anything. You're just going to think, oh, we're stuck. Here's our little box. You know, think think of the the uh, what's the movie with Will Smith and Kevin uh, Hitch? He's like, he's stay in your box. You know, right here, just stay in your box. Like that. It's very easy for banks and other organizations, I think, that are heavily regulated to to get stuck in that box because they think they're just surrounded by these regulations that they can't they can't get free of. When in fact, they're really just hurting themselves because they they're misinterpreting interpreting them or over interpreting them. Yeah, I 100% get that. <laughs> before this, uh, before every podcast episode, I have to call John for a two-hour rules and regulations review, where he gives me <laughs> a long list of the stuff I can't talk about or mention. And then we break it all in the first two minutes anyway. Yeah, so. just immediately. We have to cut out the whole like five minutes of conversation. So, yeah, I was going to say, so uh, it was the word penetration not on those rules and regulations. Uh, yeah, well, it thankfully, was. Yeah. I threw it out. Thankfully, we're regulated by the SEC, so it takes, you know, four years to resolve the issues. And your penalty is 1% of the money you made off of it. <laughs> and since we don't monetize the podcast, we're yeah. okay. So the joke's Whoa. on them. <laughs> Zero. So I like the um, sort of recognition, you know, that people – run the business, people make change. And so of course, relationships is, you know, a critical part of um, guiding change. And of course, that's true in every industry. And I, and I suppose from where I'm sitting, what I'm most curious about is the senior management, the CEOs, the boards of directors, et cetera, in finance, because in manufacturing, there are enough companies that recognize what lean is, Right, and are interested in implementing it. And and then there's some outliers that aren't really interested in being a lean company. Um, you know, they're kind of more interested in, can I use this tool here and this method here and, and see some results, you know. But I'm not, you know, aware that lean is even a conversation, you know, in finance. And you said something earlier about that. So tell us a little bit about where senior leadership is in the industry and maybe where you see it going. Well, I definitely say that there, there is a growing interest in it. So, you know, it started manufacturing. There's been a big movement in healthcare. Um, but, you know, in healthcare, that, that conversation started somewhere. I would say in the financial industry, we're kind of at that point where it's becoming more known. They, they see, okay, it's happening over here, here, and here. Um, you know, what can we do with it? Um, I do know of a couple of, banks I would say they're pretty far along relatively speaking like they're adopting lean as a philosophy um, you know with some leaders uh, with senior management support um, 
And then there are others that are more, it's middle management who are familiar with it. Um, and so they're trying to drive it out from the middle up, middle down, which maybe works sometimes, but uh, we all know what happens when the top doesn't buy into it. It just tends to, to die out. Um, so that's where I, th- I that's in my experience, that's where I think the industry is. Um, so there's, I've, I've been talking with, um, you know, peers, at other banks, and they're like, the, the industry is just ripe with opportunity um, for the next kind of big, uh, not only just lean movement, but just continuous improvement in general in, in financial services. You've mentioned it several times on your LinkedIn, but I would like to minute for the audience. Explain how that goes handy, hand in hand with your golf game. Continuous improvement in my golf game? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, well, I think it really comes down to the... Uh, the scientific method. It's, you know, plan, do, study, act. Um, in golf, uh, if I want, you know, the end goal is to shoot the lowest score possible. Uh, well, you, that happens over the course of 18 holes doing certain things, right? Um, obviously, it's easier to score lower if you're hitting greens regulation. It's easier to hit greens regulation if you're hitting fairways and not having to hit a green from behind a tree. Um, if you're avoiding hazards. Um, so it all really starts on that first tee shot of if I want to hit the fairway, what club selection gives me the best chance of hitting the fairway. And then you're taking into account the environment, the wind, your uphill, downhill. That's the plan, right? And then you actually have to golf, right? Yeah, that's, that's the plan. So you hit your shot. It's okay. I, that kind of measure worked. I, I hit the fairway. Well, now you're in the next condition. Now I got to hit the green, which is a totally different environment. You got to plan for that shot and execute that shot. Um, and you got to keep doing that continuously for 18 holes, hopefully with the, you know, resulting in, in the lowest score. And so that, that's one way to attribute uh, you know, continuous improvement to golf. Um, but I'll also not just go to the course and practice like that. I'll go to the range and like I did yesterday morning and I just practiced one thing. Set down some alignment sticks and made sure that <clears throat> practice my pre-shot routine, stepping in, hitting a shot. And I come back out, step back walk back in, hit the shot. I didn't really care how I hit the shot. I was more worried about, can I get into a rhythm of this pre-shot routine that sets me up? If, if I create that as, or build that as a habit, I get very comfortable up when I walk up to the ball, swing, hit, and that, um, you know, pro- professionals will tell you that's what makes them so good is they just have that routine that gets, that allows them to get set and go. Um, and that's something that amateurs struggle with because obviously they don't have all the time to practice on it. Um, but I'll go do that and I'll just practice on one little thing here at a time on the range and then try and take that out to the course and practice it um, and then study how that worked and what effect did it have on my game. I really like that example that you shared for a couple of reasons. One is that um, at one regional distribution center that I worked at, uh, we had a small, small-ish, probably 20,000 square feet actually, area uh, that was non-production, right? Offline. It was just for practice. And they had a fork truck course set up there uh, with different conditions, including a an area with like bumper pads, like off a NASCAR track or something where they would pour different materials on the floor. And people would practice driving through it and controlling their their lift after getting this liquid on their, their wheels. Um, but they also also used to set up uh, not really production lines because it was a warehouse, but there's more value add work being added into the supply chain lately. So repackaging, special packaging, 
uh, stuff like that. And they would practice there. And it was amazing how when they were looking at the operation, they could figure out what people struggled to do consistently. And the first thing they would do is just talk to the team, right? Like, why is this so challenging? So DPAL, um, which is basically you have a full pallet of goods, the same thing, and you put them onto a conveyor belt, which eventually sorts it to different customers, right? Well, it's not ergonomic. Like the pallet should be over here. You should be doing a 90 degree turn. You're doing a 180 turn, you know, stuff like that. Mm -hmm. But then they would go set it up in this test environment and the employees would just go do it. And like they would pay somebody the first two hours of the day, you're just doing this. You're just practicing. And they'd have a coach there and they made a, you know, kind of a game out of it. Like the coach would wear a referee shirt and have a whistle and stuff like that. And one of them was a uh, retired like army ranger or something. And he would pretend to be a drill sergeant and sometimes he'd like bring his hat <laughs> in and stuff, you know? Uh, so that, yeah, they had a blast with it. Um, and it was just this idea of for PDCA, you know, practice offline if you can, yep. so you're not actually interrupting or destroying something. And then, you know, it sometimes just two hours of practice on a basic motion, a basic action from one employee, all of a sudden they're a superstar. Like they go back out to the floor and they have top production, right? So I like that example of practicing one specific thing, you know, until you're good at it. Um, and I've seen it used effectively in some, you know, fairly simple work environment. Jake, are you all right? Yeah, are we boring you there, Jake? Sound like you were yawning. So am I getting some feedback or noise? I have some heartburn. Oh, I got you. Hold on. I'll be back directly. All right, you can have berry or you can have cherry lemon. I'm good with the berry. Oh, cherry lemon, I don't think I've ever heard of that combination before. There you go, just open wide. I'll just get that in there. <laughs> well, I think that's why I bought it. I was so intrigued. I was like, they actually paid someone to sit down, right? First, they fed him a pot of chili. They're like, you know, to test this, you have to have heartburn. So the guy's there, he's like eating a whole pot of chili. And then he's eating these, you know, mint flavored antacid. And he's like, this is so gross, like mint and chili. And he just started experimenting. Like, I wonder what tastes good when I'm burping up chili. You know, I think cherry lemon, that's the flavor I came up with. <laughs> like somebody got paid to do this. That's, a, that's also John's handle on OnlyFans. Cherry lemon. I caught primarily from both PDCA cycles, which I love, um, both of us talking about focusing on one thing, getting out in actual practice, you two, not myself, um, getting out in actual practice one step at a time until it works and then expanding. And there's a nice phrase there that John likes to repeat incredibly often where it says, go smooth to go slow to go fast or something to that nature. Maybe, John, you can say it a little better that I just relate to so much. Slow is smooth, smooth is fast. Yep. You know, I first heard that phrase on the movie, uh, I think, Shooter. Yeah, say. that's what it's from. It's from uh, yeah. firearms training. Yeah. Yeah. So if you're trying to uh, put a weapon on target, right, uh, what do they say in Old West? Slap leather, you know? You have to practice slow because that's smooth, and then you can, mm -hmm. you know, get your weapon on target more quickly than somebody who's trying to move quickly. Right. Mm -hmm. um, 
it's a truism based on human physiology and it's true for everything. If you're practicing your tennis serve, your golf swing, everything else, you don't start out maximum velocity, right? Your baseball pitch. But I think it's a good analogy for physical systems in production where, you know, you're not talking about the firing of neurons in the human body, right? And establishing that pathway. And then you can go more quickly, but it is really similar. You know, you have to establish the repeated habit before you can go fast with that habit, right? Because Mm -hmm. you don't have, if you're going quickly, you don't have as much time to respond to variance. Yeah, I remember my first job out of college at the warehouse I was working in. We had just set up a new um, packing area. And I remember the first day we were alive, the goal was let's ship 400 boxes today. That was the goal, 400. By the time I left that company, that line, that area could ship out 35,000 orders in a day. So you never could have started off, okay, we're going to ship, you know, ship 35,000 a day. What? Right. right. <laughs> we're new at this. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. It's the same, you know, principle is like when you're learning to drive, you know, you learn to drive in the parking lot, not on the Autobahn, you know, <laughs> because you don't have as much time to react. Right. right. So, you know, having the smooth systems, also having gone through the PDCA cycle, and experiencing some failures, you know, some failure modes, hopefully you have like a PFMEA or, or something close, you know what the risks are and you've had to handle them before. So you can deploy the countermeasures more quickly. So if you haven't done that yet, trying to go fast, when something comes up, you know, it's like crashing on the Audubon. Something you talked about there, that, that practice area that you were uh, describing, I think that's something that can become more commonplace in office environments. So I found that we don't do that. So a lot of what we do is in, it's on the computer screen, it's using technology and, you know, technology has different environments. You have your production environment, but then you also have your test and maybe your, your development environment, which are kind of sandboxes. Well, only the IT people play around in there and that's where they're doing, they're building whatever, you know, we tell them to. Um, but I think we need to, if we're going to deploy some new process that's in some application, well, let's put it out there in that test environment and have the users actually go use it, which I mean, theoretically, you should be doing in the, your UAT portion of the process. Um, but let's just, even if you know, it passes testing, we know it works, now just get everyone in there and using it and practice it. That way, once it's live, they're already up to see they can use it. If you're pushing out to production, now all of a sudden, you know, it's Monday morning and my process has changed. Or if I'm trying to, you know, underwrite a loan, now everything I knew last week is now, it's, it's different. Um, right. And you're just going to end up shooting yourself in the foot. And I think if you took that approach to um, let them practice, um, whether it's for a day or half a day or two hours, you probably reap a lot of benefit from doing that. that that's enough. An area of uh, opportunity I see in, in office environments that I very rarely see, see used. Just in every production and distribution environment I've ever been in, like step one, engineer the capacity for training Two, actually conduct training any kind, even if it's crappy, even if it's discussion without bullet points, it's infinitely more valuable than a company that does not. And I see all the time companies that they don't have a training plan at all, or it's a plan in a dusty binder that never gets referenced or talked about. Hi, Jay. <laughs> Welcome to International Freight Network. Today, you get to shadow Johnny. Just do everything that he does. Yeah. 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 We actually had a problem. I, I was, I, I managed a project to implement some new, uh, project management software. And we initially, when we started the project, we were just going to do one release into production and then it's going to be live for everyone to use. So then we decided to break it off and do two 
And for the first release, it would be live only for actual project managers so that they could get used to using the system prior to all their stakeholders and project team members using the system because if they didn't know how to use it, their team was gonna to come to them and be like, well, what, what do I do? How do I track my tasks now? How do I update my actions and all that stuff? Uh, where do I find risks and, and such? So we gave them time you know, a month in advance to get familiar with it. So that way once their stakeholders came online, they could help then onboard and train them to use this new way of managing projects. Um, sounds great in theory. There was some uh, benefit to it, but um, I think one of the best pictures I've ever seen it has a picture of a mountain on it with the guys planting a flag in the ground and the flag says go live and it's like yes we're live and then right next to it is even a bigger mountain that says change management <laughs> now we've changed everyone's world now we got to get up this mountain um, and it takes a lot of effort um, but again if you have that training plan and you never enact it you're never going to get past that change manager mountain and you're probably going to end up regressing backwards um, from where you initially initially tried to do with whatever it was that you tried to deploy yeah that's a great great call out there and we use the practice uh, method on uh, pretty much everything so i think one of the areas in my career that receives the least attention is training frontline and middle management on basic uh, conflict resolution, um, people skills, uh, how to deliver a write-up, right? So I had a an operations manager and we had to write up a supervisor. So supervisor's first level of management, operations manager is second level of management, right? And this ops manager had never written anybody up before. Well, that's um, setting them up to fail. Right? That's a skill they have to have, right? So initially, I was just going to write the supervisor up myself, right? Um, and when I say write up, this was this was a performance improvement plan, right? And I don't mean that as a euphemism for the first step in the firing process. I mean, we, he needed to improve his performance and we were gonna do everything we could to, to help this individual. So I took the ops manager into the conference room and we did this a couple times, I think, and just spent 30 minutes. And I was a complete asshole. I was just like, okay, pretend I'm so-and-so and we're gonna act this out. I'm not John, I'm so-and-so, okay? So I'd walk into the room and he'd say, okay, you know, so-and-so, come on in and have a seat. And I'd be like, no, I'm going to stand. What's up? I got stuff to do. Man, get out of my face. You know, hey, let's talk about your performance. Whatever, man, you've been gunning me, you know, for me for a while. And I just played that role. And at first, it was very frustrating. You know, come on, it's not going to be like this in real life. I'm like, how do you know? Right. So after doing this a few times this particular manager was very comfortable. And sure enough, the real conversation was a lot easier than that, right? But that he developed the confidence because he responded to so many possible conversations that like his bases were covered, you know? Mm -hmm. Like I rolled out all the excuses, you know? Well, the reason I do it that way is my mom just died of cancer. Do you have a tissue? <laughs> uh, we went through every possible iteration of anger, denial, you know, excuse, 
all of that um, until this manager was comfortable. And I think it was well worth the investment. And I chose that originally, I was just going to do the, the write up myself. And I thought, well, I can't do that because that's not fair to this manager. Like they have to learn this or they're never going to be successful. They're never going to move up in the organization, right? So we carved that time out and long term benefits weren't just for that manager because now they have a skill that reduces things like HR complaints and, you know, all of the extra work that goes into when you can't communicate well with the person you're trying to hold accountable, right? Yeah, I love that because you're treating soft skills like they're hard skills. And that's exactly how it should be. Here's a window. We're actually going to review this. We're actually going to let you practice and flesh it out, show you how that works in a safe environment. And then you know, have some scenarios where we can then bring that into the real world because that's how life works. Like these things yeah. aren't secrets. They're not advanced, but you do have to learn them. That, that yeah, reminds me of a, of a story. Um, this is <clears throat> back when I was managing part of operations. And uh, um, so I, I had hired, one of the things I'd like to tell people that record me was that I will always do everything I can as your manager to help you be successful. So if, if your performance is sledding, my first thought isn't going to be, okay, how do I manage this person out and replace them? It's always going to be, what can I do to, to help you get better? And when I hired a couple supervisors, I told them the same thing. That's how I'm going to manage you. Um, and so I walked them through and let them observe how I, how I handled situations, kind of like what you're talking about. Let them see, here's how you do this or here's how you can do this. So then when we went to the pandemic hit and we went remote and we had an employee that all of a sudden kind of just dropped off the radar. It wasn't logging in or when they were logging in, it was odd hours. Um, work wasn't getting done and we couldn't get a hold of them. Um, phone calls, emails, IMs, just couldn't get a hold of them. And I was to the point where like, do I call a reference, check, like a well check, call the cops, say, hey, can you go to this house? Cause I don't know if my employees, okay. Um, you know, got to that level, but I couldn't because we didn't have the correct address <laughs> on file. Um, so finally we got, you know, long story short, got in touch with them and, and all that. And, and they were, you know, giving some excuses and whatnot. And I was to the point where I'm like, you know what? I think we just need to cut ties with this person. I've done what I can. Um, talked with HR, HR has talked and, you know, everyone's been talking to this individual and, um, I'm kind of like, all right, what, well, she didn't report to me at that point, this new supervisor was her manager. Um, and I, I told him, you know what, if you decide you want to just, uh, terminate her and we'll, we'll replace the position, I'm, I'm supportive of that. And he goes, you know what, Kyle, I'm not her manager. I've not done everything that I can do to help help this person be successful. And I would like the chance to do that. And I go, did you just quote me to me? <laughs> he goes, yeah. <laughs> like, well, well played, well played. All right, go. Um, and I left the department not long after that for another this role I'm in now, but uh, I do know shortly after that on our team calls, like this individual would never speak of our team calls. Like, I don't know, a week after that, she actually cracked a joke to open up the meeting. Wow. And all of a sudden she was like engaging that way. I'm like, huh, shit. <laughs> I, I was ready to you know, write this person off and, you know, maybe there is some light at the end of the tunnel. So anyway, that was just uh, one of those the kind of moments when the, the student has, you know, taught the teacher. <laughs> something. Yeah. yeah. Well, I had a couple of thoughts there. First, you know, Jake, you're absolutely right on the soft skills part of it. Like they can be practiced, 
Um, the reason I think that there's a gap there is that most of our operational leaders aren't very skilled in that. It's just not a uh, priority, particularly when we're talking about uh, engineering, um, manufacturing operations for years has been engineering driven, which makes sense. It's physics, right? Uh, but when you go to engineering school, at least when I did, um, it, there was a lot of math and you know, theory and modeling and all of that, and not a lot of, yeah, but you have to be able to explain this to the guy that runs the machine for a living, right? Or the guy who runs the factory who used to run the machine for a living, you know? Um, and so I think there's just a, a lack of skill depth there. But at the same time, man, it's just like baseball. If you want to be good at baseball, you have to get in the batting cage. If you want to be good at writing people up, you have to do it over and over and over. You can't get good at baseball by reading a book or having a conversation. You have to practice it, right? You can't get good at writing people up from attending an HR conference or a seminar. You just can't. Like, you have to do it, right? And part of developing your team is giving them the opportunity to do those things, or in my case, simulating it. Right, as close as we can, you know, to the real thing, as well as sitting on, sitting in on other meetings and watching folks do it, that sort of thing. Um, and then, for your part, uh, Kyle, when we are discussing performance issues, and we have sort of reached the bottom of the barrel, the end of the rope, we're done with our own skill set. We are sort of thought to think in terms of writing people off or, you know, terminating the employee or something like that, where I'm going to do everything I can to get them to win. And then, okay, we can't. So we're going to part ways, something like that. But there's a lot of situations where the person is just not cut out for the role or even the company. Like that's a real thing. And we need to be comfortable with, I get it because people have to pay their bills. Right. And being terminated is a big fear for some people, right? Or losing their job for any reason is a big fear for some people. But we also have to be honest on, you know, both sides of the conversation, like this might just not be for you. You know, you're a tiger and I'm trying to teach you to be the bear riding the unicycle. You're not a bear, you know, from the circus. Like they have the bear on the, do they still do circuses? Yep, I don't know. I don't. You showed your age there. The point is that uh, some roles and the rules for that role and the responsibilities and some, they're just not a good match. And that should be, a, I think that should enter into the conversation earlier rather than later, right? Mm -hmm. Had a fella, he's very successful now, a supervisor. Um, before, when he was an hourly operator, he couldn't come to work on time. So he worked first shift, starts at first shift there, started at 7 a.m., which you know, it was a, a late start for a first shift, right? A lot of factories, first shift starts earlier than that. But 7 a.m. and couldn't make it. And he was going to get fired for attendance. And so the operations manager just said, hey, dude, um, here's your choices, right? We can go down the uh, progressive write-up path or you can move to second shift. The guy was like, oh, thank God. I've been, you know, a, a night owl my whole life. Boom, instant success story. Right. Mm -hmm. So just an example, the way that guy's circadian rhythm was set up, you know, he was five hours ahead of everybody else, you know, um, 
And so midnight would come along and everyone's wrapping up and he'd be like, well, that was great. So who wants to go get a beer? You know? <laughs> so he was strong all the way to the end of the shift. Um, and they, the manager had the, the sort of common sense to take advantage of that and work you know, with the guy's strengths. So yeah. it's just an observation I've had as I've gone along is sometimes we, we are stuck in this mold of the way we do things is the only way. And my job is to get this person to be successful in this way we've always done things. Instead of maybe zooming out a little bit and seeing the big picture of success and wait a minute, what's this person good at and bad at and what rules can I bend to make them successful and then the company successful by extension, right? Right. Absolutely. Thank you so much for joining us today. It was fascinating to talk a little bit about the world of finance and lean and also learning about all of the similarities in the problems you have, the solutions and all of that stuff. How can folks get in touch with you? Uh, you can find me on LinkedIn, very active on there, very responsive to messages and uh, you know, appreciate any, any interaction I can get with my posts where a lot of learning happens. I'll, I'll leave the audience with one, one thing to think about is experience comes from poor judgment. Jake, you're the most experienced person I know. And on that note, <laughs> have a good week, everybody. 